Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. I want to address a few things about the current state of our nation for just about three minutes before we turn to God's Word together. And, and I will seek to make my comments in accord with God's Word just before Joshua went up against Jericho, we read in, in uh, Joshua 5 that it was evening at Gilgal and Joshua lifted up his eyes and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, no, rather I indeed come now as captain of the Lord of hosts. That's an important to remember that in the conflicts of men God's people are for God and they do not take their position on the side of men this is not their their chief alliance their chief loyalty now I said they do not take their position on the side of men but and that's an important point that we are loyal to God and alone the Lord's army is for him. But there is no doubt going to be a time when in your life and mine we will have to choose sides and things. And we pray for wisdom in those times. There is a, there's a, an interesting passage in Genesis. Um, Lot and Abraham have separated as Pastor Gary, Gary Knapp spoke about two weeks ago about that separation. And in the, in the meantime, between their separation and God's destruction of the city of Sodom, the city of Sodom, together with about three other cities, rebelled against the king who had been ruling them, who was, whose name was Keterleomer. And, and Keterleomer defeated the king of Sodom and took captive Lot and his whole family. And so the the people, the political alliance that, that Lot was a part of because he was living in Sodom um, was defeated. Lot was taken captive. And at that point, Abraham had to choose a side. And he did. And he fought Keterleomer. And he defeated Keterleomer. But he refused to profit from it by taking any of the goods. And he said to, said to the king of Sodom, just remember, you didn't make me rich. I'm not taking a penny out of this. And really, this must be our stand and our understanding that as things go on, we may be forced to take sides. We're not above sides. But in the end, our, our side, our loyalty is to God. And we do not identify with one party of this world over another. We must at times join one. But ultimately, our loyalty is to God. And I think that's a vitally important thing for us to understand and to be aware of as we see our nation divided. We're not so clean that we can stand above the fray. The time will come when we'll have to make choices. But it, even then, we must remember that God is our, our paramount choice and nothing we do is, is for any other cause than the glory of God. So will you stand with me? We're going to look together at Matthew 12. For the next three weeks, I want to challenge you as Jesus challenges the people 
in a series of passages that's found at the end of chapter 12. A series of challenging passages which I believe provide a good and useful challenge for you and for me at the beginning of a new year for our entire church. And the first is the challenge that's found in Matthew 12, 38 through 42. And that's our passage this morning. The next is the challenge that's found beginning in verse 39. And it, or I mean 43, and it goes through verse 45. And the final one is 46 through the end of the chapter. I am looking at these as the challenge to flee, the challenge to be filled or to fill, and the challenge to obey. Flee, fill, obey. And these are the three things that I hope God allows us as a congregation to do this coming year. To flee, to be filled, and to obey. Flee, fill, obey. Matthew 12, 38 through 42. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up. That's the queen of Sheba who came to see Solomon with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, this is your word and we ask you to speak through it. Guide my lips, Father. I pray that your word will come not merely as words, but with power and with the spirit and with the, the power that the spirit brings of conviction. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. This is the first in a series of challenges, I said, the first of three. This week it is to be, to be a uh, to be a person who, who is put to flight, who flees, who flies away, a person who runs. Next week to be filled, following week to obey, this morning to flee, to flee. To flee the trap that is introduced in our, our passage, the trap that the Pharisees have fallen into, to flee the life of the Pharisees, to to flee the temptation that is always in us to be like the Pharisees, to flee the Pharisees. We are told in our passage that some of the scribes and Pharisees came to Jesus and asked him to give them a sign. Why do they ask for a sign? Well, because Jesus is preaching and teaching and demanding things from people. He's not just speaking vacuous nonsense. He's calling people to change. He's saying to the Pharisees, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you do this and that. You should not do this. You should not be that way. Perhaps no one is more attacked by Christ than this class of people, the Pharisees and the scribes, the, the religious conservatives of the day. And so they come to Jesus and they say, give us a sign. Well, what are they saying? Give us a sign for? Because they're saying, you haven't convinced us yet. You have not yet made it clear to us that we really do need to obey you 
when you say to us, repent. Because he was preaching repentance when he came. Because his message to the Pharisees, as it was to everyone else, was a message of repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. The same message that John the Baptist preached, the same message he sent his disciples out to preach, this was the message of Jesus, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Repent, turn away, flee, flee from your sin, because God has come close to you. Someone greater than the Queen of Sheba and Solomon, someone greater than Jonah is here. Repent. The kingdom of God has come near. That's exactly what Jesus has been preaching, and this is precisely what the Pharisees do not want to do. Now, I want to say to you that repentance, as Jesus preaches it, is not merely a notion in our heart. Repentance is often thought of as saying, I'm sorry about something, or I wish I hadn't done something. But that is only a very small portion, and often not even a real portion, of what the Bible defines as repentance. Because the Bible defines as repentance, not just the turning away in our hearts from something, which is very easy to do, because very often when we're sinning, we're bringing upon ourselves the bad consequences of those sins, and so we do have real regret over what we've done. I was reading about the daughter of Goldie Hawn, who has for 20 years refused to have anything to do with her father, and now in her 40s she's saying, I was reading it in, a, in the Google News yesterday, that she's saying, whoa, I wish I could see my other siblings, but they're half-siblings, and I don't talk to my dad, and so I don't know them, and it's a repentance. Well, it's not true repentance, it's a regret, right? Shouldn't have said it's repentance, I meant to say it's regret. But that regret, if it doesn't lead to something, is not repentance. Regret? is common. We see in the Bible that there are many people who regret their sins who don't repent. The rich man in hell who asks Abraham to send the poor man Lazarus to comfort him regrets his choices, does not like where he is, does not think that his brothers should continue to live the way they are and have been living so that they will end up where he is. He has real regret, but he can't repent. We see that Esau regretted selling his whole inheritance to his, old, to his younger brother, to Jacob, for a pittance, for nothing. He regrets it, regrets it terribly. And yet the Bible says, though, he, he sought repentance with tears, it was not available to him. And so regret is not repentance. Uh, best and most powerful example of all is that, that sad, tragic man who is not so distant from us as we think, Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot, who immediately almost upon selling his Lord and Savior to the, to the leaders of the Jews to be put to death, regretted what he had done, regretted it enormously, took the money that he'd been paid and threw it to them, said, I want to return it, I want to undo it, and they wouldn't take it. So he threw it into the temple, and then in the depth of his despair and regret, went and hanged himself. That's regret, but it's not repentance. Repentance is not regret. Regret is often just something that's a natural consequence of doing the wrong thing. Repentance entails leaving the thing that you did behind. It means fleeing from your sin. It means turning away in a way that puts the sin actually behind you. Repentance is not just mental, but physical. Repentance is not just something that's an emotion, but it's an action. It is what we do, not what we think or what we say. Now, 
the things we do are the products of our thoughts and so it is necessary initially that we think thoughts of repentance but thinking those thoughts is very different than taking those actions and the Bible makes clear that God is looking for action and so this morning I want to speak to you about fleeing the flight the flight that is repentance the flight that the Pharisees will not engage in it's a flight that Jesus says is of the essence of the Christian life now the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say give us a sign give us a sign if you give us a sign if you impress upon us enough uh, our duty we will we'll listen that's not stated but it's implicit give us a sign you know show us and not stated here maybe it was actually stated in the event and we will follow you we will heed you we may even repent Jesus is at odds with no group in all the world in his life in this world and with no group more than the scribes and the Pharisees now there were many a group that Jesus could have been at odds with he was clearly at odds as was John the Baptist with the Herodians and the Herodians the followers of the king the political power of the day the Herodians did not like Jesus and they took their place in his in his murder Jesus was at odds with the Sadducees those who denied the resurrection and he had some hard words for them the Sadducees were the were the liberal religious people of the day the people who who clearly valued power and money more than anything else and Jesus did not fight them much but boy did he fight the scribes and the Pharisees and why because the scribes and the Pharisees were the religious conservatives of the day they were the people who went to church and said the word of God the word of God they went to the temple and said the temple of the Lord they said the word of God the inerrant word of God they pronounced everything in orthodox terms they were orthodoxy itself they were the right-minded people of Israel with one small fault which was they would not repent of their sins now everyone sins right there's no group in all these groups that doesn't sin and so sin is not unique to the Pharisees but what is unique to the Pharisees is that they are real sinners and they won't admit it they won't repent they refuse to listen to Jesus when he says to them you must change they say oh show us a sign give us a sign now in a sense the Pharisees of this day would be people who well, they're not going to be sitting in the, re, the liberal churches where they deny the resurrection of Jesus and say things like that, right? And those are Sadducees. And they're not in the do-good churches where you live a separate life and you just live piously. They're not. Those are the Essenes out in the wilderness, you know? They're, they're the people who say, I just want to be holy and escape the world. So they're not, in the, they're not in that kind of a church. And they're not in the fighting fundamentalist churches either, are they? 
Now, you might think of them as fighting fundamentalists, but these are reasonable men. They don't live to fight. They're not the zealots. The zealots are out fighting. They're trying to establish Jerusalem as the center of the world and the worship of the temple as the center of the center of the world. They're not that. They're not trying to rebel against Rome. They're not leading crusades against Roman authority and false kings like Herod. They've come to peace with these things. They're reasonable people. They're conservatives. They'd be sitting right where you are. It's where you'd find them. It's the kind of people they were. Reasonable people of the world who lead very good lives, lives that appear like pillars of rectitude. They say the word of God. They know the word of God. The problem is the door to the church, Jesus says, is a door that you enter through repentance. Through leaving your sin behind. Now there's more to it than that and we'll come to that next week. Be filled and obey. But it begins with repentance. And that door is a door that Jesus has opened wide. He's called people to repent, to repent. He's given sign after sign of his power and the reason that he says the kingdom is near and why they should repent. That door is open wide, but the Pharisees have locked their arms and they stand straight across that door and they seek to keep anyone. So Jesus says to them, you won't go in and you keep others from entering as well. And he's speaking precisely of this. They will not repent and they tell others they don't need to repent either. But let's be fair and be clear. The Pharisees did not fail to repent in formal ways. Okay? Now formally, yes, we must repent. Oh, we must repent. And that's what they did every week when they went to the temple and made their weekly offerings. That's what they did at the Passover and the Day of Atonement. They repented very formally. They said, we are sinners. Father, I'm glad that you love me. I'm glad I'm not quite a sinner like that guy, that tax collector over there. I am a sinner. I'm not that bad. And so they repent in a formal way of minor things. And they never publicly repent of being wicked. I want to say to you, brothers and sisters, about your life and your leaders, about your life, if you never speak in a small group or in a setting like our worship service or in your family, if you have a family of real sins in your life, if every sin you confess is the kind that you'd be comfortable coming up here on the stage and confessing, well then, you might be a Pharisee. Because the Pharisees, every sin is a, an excusable sin. It's a minor sin. They're not like those wicked people. They're just not like them. So I say to you, when was the last time you confessed to the elders, to your small group, in any forum where it's not absolutely safe that you are a sinner committing grievous sins. 
Now, of course, I take it for granted that you are a sinner committing grievous sins. Am I wrong? We men who look at pictures on the internet that we should not look at. When was the last time we confessed that? I'm not advocating confessing it to your wife. I'm saying to men who will hit you about it. To the elders. Not always sure it's the best thing to confess it first to your wife. I think that's an excuse at times. How many of you have ever admitted that you have looked at unclothed women on the internet? Admitted it to the elders. Let me add, I'm speaking to you, women, I'm talking to you about your tongues. Perhaps porn as well. But these sins that we can gloss over and say, well, I was just being that way. These sins that we think we can erase by erasing the internet history on our browser. Oh, it's gone. When was the last time you admitted the real sins, the great sins of your life? Don't follow leaders, brothers and sisters, who don't admit real sin. We live in a world where the religious conservatives are all clean men. Really clean men. There's just no dirt in them. You'd think that they were conceived immaculately and they never go to the bathroom. They're so clean. They're clean. They speak about God in clean ways. They talk about his grace and his goodness and his mercy. You'd never know that they're looking at evil stuff on the internet until it comes out. You'd never know that they are engaging in affairs with women that aren't their own until it comes out. Look for leaders who will admit that they sin. Look for leaders who admit that they need the grace of God because they're desperately wicked. Who understand that the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, as Jeremiah says. Those are the leaders you can trust. Praise God that I'm on an elder board and that you are led by an elder board and I'm governed by an elder board as your pastor. That when we come to confess our sins together and we do this at times just as the elder board, but we also do it every time that we pray for healing for someone because James says that when someone is ill, go to the elders and ask for prayer. James says also that when we're praying, we should confess our sins to each other that we may be healed. And so it's a very clear tying of confession of sin to physical healing. And so every time someone comes to us for healing, asking for prayer, we stand and those of us who are engaging in it, we confess our sins. I'm proud that real sins are talked about there. Lust, anger, pride. Because those are men you can trust. Those are real men. You know, the Pharisees and the scribes, they're reasonable men. They're men of the establishment. And probably these men who come, these particular members of this class, consider themselves even more open-minded than most. These men who come seeking a sign are pursuers of truth, they think. They're willing to give a new voice a chance. They're adventuresome and fair-minded men. 
They actually give Jesus the respect that they themselves want because they always want to be called teacher, rabbi, rabbi. They call him rabbi. They say teacher. Teacher is the title they crave, and at the outset, they gave it to Christ. In Matthew 15, we'll see another group of scribes and Pharisees come seeking a sign, but they don't greet Jesus saying teacher. And Matthew tells us at the outset that they came to test Jesus, but that's not said about these men. They say, teacher, give us a sign. These men are reasonable men, establishment men, men of wisdom and gravity, leaders, confident men. So they say to Jesus, as one confident man to another, as one teacher to another, give us a sign. Yep. Give us a sign. Impress us. Show us something. That's what happens at pastor's conferences when you go up to someone and say, he says, how big's your church? What do you run on Sunday morning? And you say, well, I run this. And he goes, oh, okay, that's a sign. Now I'll take you seriously. They're saying to Jesus, give us a sign, man. Prove yourself. This isn't a great imposition, is it? After all, Jesus is constantly performing miracles. But Jesus gives them a peremptory no. 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 In fact, it's not a simple no. It's a resounding no. It's an in-your-face no. An evil and adulterous generation, Jesus says. An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. What has he just called them? an evil and adulterous generation. He said, you evil, adulterous men. Yet no sign will be given to it. Now, you may have heard this story before, and so it may not strike you with the force it undoubtedly had in the event itself. But in the event itself, for Jesus to say, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, is to respond to an overture with a slap. It's responding to a certain degree of collegial friendliness with a wham across the face. All they ask is what Jesus has constantly been doing, a sign, a miracle, evidence of his power. And if you were there, you might think, well, Jesus, I mean, these are the first Pharisees in a long time to show you any public respect. Why can't you meet them halfway? Let's make nice. Let's accommodate them, be generous, be broad-minded, give them what they ask, and you'll win them. Of course, that's not true, is it? Because Jesus has done sign after sign after sign. Jesus is not opposed to make giving signs, is he? Does Jesus refuse signs? If you've read the, the Gospel of John recently, you know that John says there were seven signs Jesus did, each of them a great miracle. And he says these were his signs. Now, every miracle was a sign, but Jesus did some, especially as formal signs to the people that the kingdom of God had come upon them. And so, Jesus is willing to give signs, but on this occasion, with these men, who he's been calling to repentance, he is not willing to give a sign. Jesus knows these men. And these men know Jesus. They're not ignorant of what he's been doing, of his miracles, it's not like the Pharisees and the scribes were always off somewhere else when Jesus was doing his miracles. We know they were there because time after time when Jesus does a great miracle, they criticize him for it. They criticize him for the very signs this group now seeks. Criticized him for healing on the Sabbath. Criticized him for saying your sins are forgiven to the paralyzed man he healed. 
They accused him of being in league with Beelzebul, Satan, and casting out demons and freeing the man who was bound by Satan from the bondage that made him blind and mute. That man that we just read about earlier in this chapter. They know what Jesus has done. But they are unpersuaded. 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 Not unpersuaded that he can work miracles. Unpersuaded that they must repent. That they must change. Unpersuaded. Prove it, they say. Make us do it. Show us a particular sign. Show us a sign. Give us the evidence that we need to know that we should repent. Do you know how this differs from every other time that Jesus did a miracle and performed a sign? Here, they ask for a sign so that they will believe him. Every other miracle Jesus did, they believed him and asked for a miracle. They began with belief and said to him, please do a miracle. These men say, we're not going to believe you unless you do a miracle. Prove it, they're saying. Prove it and I will believe. Give me a sign and I'll obey. Now, I suspect many of us are doing something similar in our lives today. We know what God has said. We know his will. We're aware of the areas in our lives where we need to change, where we need to repent. We're just like the Pharisees. We know what Jesus has said. We know what God has said. But like the Pharisees were saying to God, give me a sign. Prove it to me. Make me do it. You know, if, you, if you're really against my porn habit, get me caught. Expose me publicly. Not recognizing that one of God's great ways of dealing with sin and allowing us the freedom and grace of repentance is by causing us to acknowledge publicly our sin by ourselves. So David, who's hidden his sin with Bathsheba, writes a psalm and sings it before the people about what he did and how he had to go to God to create in him a, a clean heart. Our hidden sins, the ones that we don't speak about, that we hide, they're the ones we'll never repent of. Speak about your sins. Are you looking for God to do something special to convince you you need to obey him? Let me ask. What sign, what miracle, what deed of God would force you to take up the battle against the sin that's killing you? If I know human nature and I know my own nature, I know that you are quietly and inwardly accusing God of being unreliable, not powerful, insufficient, and that if God would only do something, you would leave that sin behind. But until God does something, you can't and you won't. You're looking for a sign rather than accepting the sign that Jesus offers to these men.
What is the sign that Jesus offers? Don't ignore the sign he does offer them. He says, there's going to be no sign given you to this adulterous and perverse generation, this evil generation. Actually, he does offer them a sign, but it's not the sort they want. What he says to them is an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This is a sign for this evil and adulterous generation, the sign of Jonah. Three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster. It's a powerful sign. It was a sign that convinced the men of Nineveh to repent. Jesus says, hey, the men of Nineveh repented at Jonah and the sign. They repented. I'm greater than Jonah. Something greater than Jonah is here. Why aren't you repenting? Yeah. Then he talks about the Queen of Sheba coming to Solomon and says, the Queen of Sheba and the men of Nineveh are going to stand up and they're going to speak to you. Actually, this is true. Our neighbors around us who are engaged in flagrant lives of sin in the judgment will stand up and speak to us because we knew and continued in our sin where they were ignorant. So Jesus says, no, I'm giving you the sign of Jonah, the sign that convinced the men of Nineveh. That's a fascinating sign. What was the sign? What was the sign that God gave to the men of Nineveh and Jonah? Jesus calls it the sign of Jonah. I give you the sign of Jonah that convinced the people of Nineveh. Now, I want to say to you that a sign that is invisible is not a sign, right? <laughs> if I describe a sign that I put on the, the road to my house, but it's invisible, it's not a sign. You've got to see it to be, have it be a sign, right? So an invisible sign is no sign. A sign that's not seen or capable of being seen is not a sign. If I write something in the sand and the water washes it away, it's not a sign. I can call it a sign, but it's no sign. To be a sign, we understand it must be seen. So the swallowing of Jonah by the whale, all right, is that the sign Jesus is speaking of? Well, no. No one saw it happen. Not even the men on the ship. The men on the ship tossed him into the sea, and he says in his book that he was sinking down, sinking down, I was sinking down, the the sea weeds were grabbing my ankles, tendrils going around my legs. I had given up, and the fish came, invisible. No one saw it. Did they see the, the fish disgorge him? Did, it, did, he, did the fish come to the, the middle of the, well, Nineveh is not on the sea, I guess. So did the fish somehow spit him, and he landed in Nineveh, and everyone said, whoa, where did he come from? Well, no, obviously not. Actually, what we're told is that the, the, the fish vomited him up, he went back to his home, and there God came to him again. So no one in Nineveh saw the fish in any way. They didn't see the fish swallow him. They didn't see the fish spit him out. So what's the sign? I'll tell you what the sign is. The sign of Jonah is a man who has come to know in a way that he communicates by his seriousness that God is a God of wrath and mercy. And when he goes to Nineveh, he is utterly convinced that God will deal with them and that God will show them mercy if they repent and he preaches like a man on fire and that's the sign of Jonah Jonah comes he says repent and the city repents 
That's the sign of Noah, of Jonah. And Jesus says, I give you the same sign. How so? Are these men going to be there? Is this whole generation going to be there when he's put to death? We're told that a few hundred men saw him after his resurrection. Certainly that's not a sign for everyone. Most people don't see it. What they see is a great force of God, a powerful preacher of righteousness going to his death. They see the Old Testament talking about the Lamb of God who's put to death for the sins of the world. They understand like the high priest who said that year, don't you understand that this man must be put to death to carry the sins of the people? And that was one of his enemies. They understand Jesus. They understand his preaching. They understand what he said to them. Leave your sin behind and follow me. And they won't do it. A greater than Jonah. A greater than Solomon. A great preacher who is willing to die for the people he's preaching to. He went to death for that message. And the scribes and Pharisees mocked him on the cross. They knew his power. Don't you think there's a little frisson of fear? That's a, a French word that means a shiver. A little shiver of fear in the scribes and the Pharisees as they stood at the foot of the cross mocking him, saying, come down, come down. If you're the Son of God, come down. Don't you think it's just a little shiver like, like the kid in the, in the zoo baiting the tiger. You know, Here, Mr. Tiger, here, Mr. And the tiger looks at them and the kids go, some sense of that was in them as they mock this great, 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 great man. They know his greatness. And this glorious Jesus has been saying to them, and he says to you, repent. Now, why do you say you can't leave your sin behind? Why do you say you need a sign if you're going to do what God tells you to? Why do you say that? God is with you now. God is calling you to repent. Back when I was in, in seminary, my brother and I had a painting company and we were painting this house in the deep woods of Massachusetts, an estate really. And uh, we didn't know how we were going to clean the wood. It was probably an 18,000 square foot house, maybe 25,000, huge. And it had been built in the 1800s and it was rotted and it had mildew everywhere on its shingles, cedar shingles. And so for the first time in our life, we'd heard about pressure washers. I mean, it probably existed before then, but we hadn't really seen them in use ever. We heard about a pressure washer. We went to the A&Z rental in the town and found they had a big pressure washer, commercial duty pressure washer. So we put it in the back of his VW bug or uh, Beetle, not, not Golf. Rabbit. Put it in the back of the rabbit, fit it in there, drove it to the house, started it up. I've told you the story before, right? Started it up, there was a rock wall over there. My brother, since he was paying for it and he was really running the crew, my younger brother that you've not met, he fired it up and he shot at the lichen and the moss on the wall and it went wham! It was incredible. It just immediately pristine rock wall. So then he'd had his fun and he gave. He gave the stick the, to me. And I was looking down in this house. My brother lived in this house. I was looking down, and there at my feet was, were the remains from one of the ancient arthritic ugly dogs that lived 
with the owner of that house. They were everywhere, these remains. Always sort of liquidy. And always coming into my brother's house, always getting on your feet because you couldn't discern it. It was liquid. You know, it wasn't like... And I hated those dogs. Oh. And uh, I saw this pile right at my... Uh, liquid pile right at my feet. And I thought to myself, I wish I could do this to that dog. And I put the gun down and I pulled the trigger. And as I was pulling the trigger, I saw a little guy from seminary who had more wisdom than I did run and dive. Now, what's he doing that for? Why is Howie running? Pull the trigger and it, the whole pile comes up and covers me. I had it in my teeth. All right? And what did I say to my brother? I gave him the handle, the gun, and I said, play me, play me now. And he said, no, it can hurt you. I said, play me. And so I stood back and I took my glasses off and he sprayed me from head to toe. It was spring, it was cold. He sprayed me, I bared my, gritted my teeth, I did. I did not want to live with that crud all over me, especially in my mouth. Now, why do I tell you this story? Because you wouldn't live with that crud in your teeth, would you? You'd go and change your clothes like I did. You'd say, wash me off, even if it's painful. Why don't we do this for the evil? that we permit into our lives? Why do we allow it to come in? Why do we open the windows of our eyes to the filth of the internet and say, I can't do anything? Why do we accept it? You wouldn't accept it if it was dog manure, but it's far worse than dog manure. Cast it out. Have done with it. Say no more. And you say, I've tried. You say, I've tried hard. What do you have to tell me, David? What can you say to a person who's tried hard? And I say to you, yes, you've tried hard. You have. But you gave up. The Bible says not to live in tomorrow. Nor to live in yesterday. But sufficient unto the day are the worries and the troubles thereof. You say, I can't keep from porn tomorrow. I can't keep from gossip. I can't keep from anger tomorrow. I say, don't worry about tomorrow. But you're not doing it right now. And it's by your will, isn't it? You're not doing it right now, which proves to me that you can say no. And you're saying that God won't help you tomorrow, so you give up today? But I say to you, and I've had some experience with this, with great sins, that if you work today, God will take care of tomorrow, because tomorrow will come. And if you work tomorrow, you'll win tomorrow. And you string together days of reliance on God, and you will be out from under it, and you will have repented. It really works. You don't need a sign. All you need to do is believe the promises 
of God. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It's good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you'll be able to endure it. The words of Christ. Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, upon you, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Trust Jesus. Don't seek a sign. Repent. Turn away. Tell others you're doing it. Don't hide it. That's the first step to failure. Acknowledge the sin and be a man or a woman and fight it and allow others to challenge you and to pray for you. There is no sin that cannot be beaten by the person who stops demanding a sign from God and says, I'll live by faith. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glory of Jesus and for the promises of his word. Let God be true and every man a liar. These promises are true. We are the liars when we say you haven't been faithful. We are the liars when we say you haven't given us the power. You are true. You are faithful. So, Father, I pray that this year will be a year of great repentance for all of us. And that sins that we have quietly accepted and that we confess to no man will be driven from our lives by our act of repentance. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.